When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of those at a podcast. My name is Kyle Dabro. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here on the half of the podcast. Bro, what a championship Sunday. Yeah, I had a little bit of everything. Um, that, that NFC Championship game kind of took on a life of its own. All the different things that happened in that game. Brock Purdy getting hurt. Josh Johnson, freaking four-street quarterback getting hurt I mean, bro like that that game was all over the place um the AFC championship game was wild from beginning to end i mean those were just the NFL games we had some big nba performances this past weekend giannis dropped the 50 bomb lakers and celtics went into ot joel dropped 47 on jokic and the nuggets the other night bro th- this past weekend was pretty lit as far as i see it definitely entertaining for sure like there was no day of the weekend in which you were like not entertained by sports like there was so much going on yeah there there was no shortage of excitement i could tell you that and uh we'll do our best to cover all the excitement that took place this past weekend so kev you ready to dive into this oh yeah all right so first things first we got to go over the afc and nfc championship games that took place this past weekend Uh, we'll go over the afc championship game first that featured the Bengals and the chiefs the Chiefs defeated the Bengals at home to advance to Super Bowl 57. It was a back-and-forth game, but Harrison Bucker ended up getting the game-winning field goal with about three or four seconds left in the fourth quarter. Uh, that sealed their fate to go on to Arizona in Glendale for Super Bowl 57, where they will go up against the Philadelphia Eagles. The Philadelphia Eagles just essentially smashed the 49ers in the NFC Championship game. Granted, Brock Purdy got hurt. That was a huge blow to the 49ers chances to advance into the Super Bowl. Josh Johnson suffered a concussion in that game as well. And the 49ers defense just fell apart in especially the second half of that game. So we'll go into those AFC and NFC championship games. Then we'll kick it over to the NBA for a little bit. We'll talk about Giannis dropping a 50 point plus performance in Kev. That was on Sunday night, correct? Yep. It was an impressive performance by Giannis and, Look, when it comes to Giannis, he's been cooking the entire season, and this latest performance proves that as well. Uh, after that, we'll talk about a game that I believe took place on Friday night uh, between the 76ers and the Denver Nuggets with Joel Embiid just going beast mode in that game. I believe he had 47 points, 18 rebounds in that game, and that's honestly a game where, look, we got Jokic, who... Is technically our favorite to win MVP right now, but I will say in that head-to-head matchup, I think Joel definitely has a say in the MVP race after that type of performance. And then after that, we'll kick it over to the Lakers and Celtics game that took place this weekend. There's a little bit of controversy surrounding that game just based off of the no call where it appeared as LeBron James was fouled trying to make a layup as time was basically expiring. That could have given the Lakers a huge road win against one of the best teams in the Celtics this past weekend. So uh, we'll cover that game to round out the episode. But guys, 
Let's waste no more time. Let's dive into this AFC Championship game. Kev, this was by far the more exciting game that we saw in the championship round in the NFL this past weekend. The Chiefs advanced to Super Bowl 57, beating the Bengals by the score of 23-20. to Patrick Mahomes leads the game-winning drive to put Kansas City into field goal range that would set up the game-winning field goal by Harrison Butker. Uh, there was a big unnecessary roughness penalty by Joseph Asai by the Bengals defense that put Bucker into range for that 40 to 45 yard field goal that pushed the Chiefs over the edge to get to Super Bowl 57 and unfortunately uh, for the Bengals they are heading home after a well-fought performance but definitely some mistakes from their side as far as I see it but Kev to kick this one to you what do you make of the Chiefs winning the AFC Championship game and advancing to Super Bowl 57? I mean, let's let's just be honest about it. Pat Mahomes has been a starter for five years. Pat Mahomes has made the AFC Championship all five of those years. He's made the Super Bowl three out of those five years. He's won one and lost one. Everything's in the air right now. I mean, like, come on. We're talking about the best quarterback in the game right now. Howled on one foot without Tyreek Hill. Obviously, the defense completely showed up, but the narrative behind this was, was he going to be able to do enough for the Chiefs to win? And Kyle and I both picked the uh, the Bengals like just straight flat out because we thought that he wasn't going to be able to do anything. And then Patrick Mahomes goes out there and throws for 326 yards and two touchdowns with a passer rating of 105. Ankle or not, Pat Mahomes went out there and carved it up. There were multiple times where he was able to throw receivers open. There was a multitude of times where he was able to at least kind of elude some kind of pressure. Now, he was definitely hobbled, limping. He was 100% wincing and in pain. But this is what we call a gamer, somebody that was able to play through injury, someone that was able to, you know, put the team on their back. And that is exactly what Pat did. And for that, I commend him. I give him all the credit in the world. And, uh, you know, the Chiefs are moving on for a reason. And now that's not to say the Bengals didn't fight hard. But when you look at it, Joe was sacked five times, two interceptions. Um, I would say, personally, in my eyes, the uh, the second one was a little bit questionable in terms of decision-making. I know that T. Higgins had a step, but I don't know if I would have put the ball there on third down as opposed to somewhere else. Um, and then, you know what I mean? We're talking about Joe Burrow was hit 12 times. Hit 12 times. That offensive line was a problem last year and was a reoccurring problem this year. Were they healthy? No. But when you come off of a dominant performance against the Bills in terms of being able to protect Joe, they only had one sack. The Chiefs were able to get to him. The Chiefs were able to rattle him. Joe made some mistakes. The team wasn't able to really get it going. And, uh, you know, they really played from behind the entire game. I mean, they went into halftime, I believe it was 13-6 to um, in favor of the Chiefs. The Bengals come out, they score right away, and then, then they go, they tie the game at 13 a pop, and then Kansas City goes and they score, and again, the second half was, well, way more entertaining. But uh, overall, man, I mean, it, it was a great game back and forth. I'm only upset because as a Joe Burrow fan, I've wanted to see him go to another Super Bowl. I wanted to see him continue to beat Patrick Mahomes so it could be like that narrative of, like, I'm the only person that has a good record against you and has done something with it in terms of it being meaningful. Not regular season games, wild card games. We're talking two AFC championships against him and two regular season games. So, um... Yeah, I mean, Pat came out on the other side, but I have to talk about the Osai hit. You are in the NFL. It is the fourth quarter, Super Bowl on the line. You are chasing Patrick Mahomes. You see that he steps out before. 
You see that he's going in that direction. On what planet do you think pushing him after he originally stepped out already made sense? On what planet did you believe within emotions and, and adrenaline and all these things that that was going to not get called with an official right in front of you? It is bonehead mistakes like that that ruin chances for good players to make historic runs. Yes, the Bengals offensive line played poor. Yes, Eli Apple is a walking cone with, with his inability to cover anybody and him just being on Twitter all day. Yeah, I said it. Eli, you suck. An overhyped, overpaid, first-round draft pick that never panned out. You're a bum. And, and then you go and, you, and then Osai just does what he does. It is mental errors like that that cost people championships. It's just stupid. There's no other word around it. You had some some you know issues in the 49ers game that we're going to get into in a few minutes, but like Osai had the opportunity to just pull off, let go. He was ready out, run behind him, fall forward, whatever. You did not have to push Pat Mahomes. So, yes, the Bengals played poorly in terms of turning the ball over, but that Osai hit. I mean, if, if, if I remember correctly, the Chiefs had no timeouts. They had one more play left because that would have been third down. And whether or not they would have converted or not, is up in the air as well. I'm not saying the game was definitively won there. But Butker, if they don't convert, would have had a 50-plus yard field goal. That is a lot more challenging than a 45-yarder. I'm not saying the kicking is easy. I'm not saying he wouldn't have made it. But again, mistakes like that screw teams, and it just it didn't bode well, bode well for the Bengals. So, I mean, again, shout-out to the Chiefs. Go into a Super Bowl once again, and Pat's got a chance at holding up uh, two rings before the age of, uh, what is it, 27, 28? Yeah, somewhere around there. I mean... Granted, he's not even in his 30s yet. He's still, I would say, probably in his mid to late 20s. But yeah, I mean, this game, to me, Kev, like you said, it definitely ramped up in that second half. But I have to say, Casey got off to a very good start. I mean, to basically go ahead 13-6, to that was a good start. But I will say, even though that the Chiefs were up, I thought that the Bengals were still in it. Because it seemed as if the Chiefs dominated that first half, especially that first quarter. That first quarter was all Chiefs. But the score didn't really reflect that. And with the Bengals only being down seven points going into halftime, look, I imagine Casey was probably feeling decent about the fact that they were up. But I know that since he was like, oh, we're still in this. Like, they've dominated the first half, but we're still in it. And it definitely showed in the second half. But since he came out with a lot of confidence in that second half, that T. Higgins touchdown... Definitely proved that it was back and forth going into the fourth quarter. It's just that KC made the plays that needed to be made right at the end. And then Joseph Asai with that unfortunate, unnecessary roughness penalty that put Bucker into field goal range. And that was a difference maker. And the, the way that I look at it is KC didn't make mistakes in this game compared to what since he did since he made the, the mistakes that they just couldn't afford to make. And Casey did just enough to capitalize off of those. And that's why they're going to Super Bowl 57. But this game had a little bit of everything as far as I'm concerned. Obviously, going into this game, Mahomes was injured. And you could definitely tell that he was hindered by that ankle injury. But I got to give him credit. Man, he stepped up to the plate and he played as well as you could have underneath those circumstances because... Kevin, when we were talking about this game last week, we both had confidence that Mahomes wouldn't be as effective in this game than what we saw. He was extremely effective. And the fact that he didn't turn the ball over in this game, 
was critical as far as I'm concerned because I thought that there'd be a chance that since he could force some turnovers with Pat mostly being in the pocket. But Pat proved me wrong in this game. Pat was taking chances, and he was extending plays with his feet. Obviously, he didn't have the step. It didn't have the burst that he typically has when he's 100% healthy. But he was still effective, and effective enough to not only pick up the necessary yards uh, to get the Chiefs in the field goal range, and then the Osai hit not only you know helped them, but you know set the set them up for the game winning field goal. But if Mahomes doesn't make that play, I don't know if Casey even gets into some sort of situation where they could potentially be in field goal range. So the fact that put Pat was putting it on the line and making plays in that situation. I got to give him credit. You know, there were a lot of obstacles in this game. And I think just the ongoing narrative going into that game was that since he had the advantage, just because we didn't know what we were going to get from Pat, but Pat played phenomenal. Not only that, I thought the Chiefs defense, they stepped up huge in this game. Two turnovers um, against Joe Burrow. You know, Joe's pretty good at not turning the ball over. And not only were they able to force one interception, but they were able to get two off of him. And not only that, Casey's defense, man, that front four showed up. Chris Jones, man, he made some spectacular plays in this game. Pretty much got one of the biggest defensive plays that we've seen from the Chiefs this year with that third down sack late in the fourth quarter to get the ball back to the Chiefs with under a minute to go. I mean, that was a critical play by Chris Jones. And the fact that he was not, the fact that he was able to get not only his first postseason sack in his career, but then get his second one, and that probably be the most critical play defensively in the entire game. Good on Chris Jones. He stepped up when they needed him, and he delivered. It just, to me, when it came to Cincy, Cincy just made critical mistakes, and they just weren't disciplined. They had costly defensive penalties, offensive line penalties, not being able to protect Joe, the interceptions. It's just all these mistakes just coalesced in what I would think for Cincy when they look back at this game they're going to look back at those mistakes then it cost them I think it's going to be the thought process when they look back at this game it's like this is a game that they more than likely had in their control had they not had those mistakes and granted they had their shots to win the game despite those mistakes it's just giving up that third down sack the unnecessary roughness penalty by Joseph Asai that pretty much sealed their fate, and that's why they're going home, and the Chiefs are advancing to Super Bowl 57. But overall, a fantastic game. I know we'll talk a little bit more about the Bengals in depth in a couple of minutes, but man, just a gutsy performance from Patrick. The Bengals just couldn't avoid the mistakes that they made. And once again, the Chiefs are back in the Super Bowl. And honestly, there was some doubt going into this game that they could do that, but they proved the doubters wrong, me included. And we'll see where it goes from here with KC advancing to the Super Bowl. I mean, and, and like Kyle said, you know, obviously we, we, we talked about the game, but we, we, we got we to gotta talk a little bit yeah. more in detail specifically about Cincinnati here and, and, and what transpired. I'll, I, I'll set you, I'll, you want me to set this one up for you? Because I know you got I mean, a lot it's, on your it's, mind. It's, it's, it's not necessarily a setup per se because both of us agree that there were so many miscues here that it's like, I said it a little bit in my analysis from the game. We're talking about a trip to the biggest game of your career. And that aside, it, it really rubs me the wrong way. Like, I know you played the game, 
obviously at a high school level, nothing, nothing massive, but yeah. like mistakes happen all the time. That was something you could have controlled. That was something that was unnecessary. Like the definition of a flag, <laughs> unnecessary. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. When it comes to Joseph Asai, I think what happened was he probably knows that Pat's going out of bounds. He probably, in the moment, he knows that. But I think it's just instinctual. you got to chase the quarterback. Even in that situation, he's going out of bounds. He's got to pull up. Osai should know to pull up because, I mean, it, it was a slight elbow shiver that he gave Pat. It wasn't like a, like a full-on like push. I think the reason why he did that, he did that elbow shiver or just shove, it's probably a better description. I think it was just momentum. He couldn't, he was in full speed and that was probably his way of slowing up. But the fact that he hit Pat when Pat already had two feet out of bounds, it's just situational awareness. You have to know you just cannot make a play like that in that situation. Granted, you know, there were plays that the Bengals could have made earlier in that game that could have swung the game in their favor to avert that situation. But in that situation, you got to pull up. You know Pat's going out of bounds. And you could tell after the game that he knew that he screwed up. I mean, honestly. Yeah, literally he was probably, crying with his helmet. Yeah, I mean, listen, I am not going to destroy the guy because no. he made a mistake. And trust me, I imagine Twitter is probably going insane with the amount of things that they're probably criticizing him with. I mean, look, I think criticism is warranted. I'm, I'm not going to say that the guy should receive death threats based on a mistake that he made in the game. Granted, it was a costly and it was a critical mistake. You just can't make that type of play in that situation. But I know people will just go overboard and because everybody's dramatic as per yeah. usual, no shock there. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to him specifically, yeah, he made a mistake. There's no doubt about it, but I I think if if you're that defense, just the players in that unit, you rally around that guy despite the fact that you know that he made a mistake. Because look, Guys make mistakes all the time defensively. And hell, there were plenty of mistakes that the Bengals made in that game that could have changed the direction of that game in their favor. So, you know, I, there's a tendency to just basically just pile all the blame on Joseph aside because of the one mistake that he made. Granted, it was a big one. It was probably the biggest one of the game. But it wasn't the only one. There were multitude. There was a multitude of mistakes that the Bengals defense made throughout that game. It's just unfortunate that the last one ended up being the most costly one. It's just, to me, I think just momentum was carrying him. And I think it was just kind of like just instinct to just shove the guy. But, or he, or he could have just lost his train of thought for a second. And it's like, I'm just going to try to make a play. And you just got to know, you just got to know where he's going to be. You know, he's going out of bounds and he made a mistake. So, and, the sideline reaction kind of said it all as far as I see it. Yeah. And I mean, Zach Taylor, there was a multitude of times they zoomed in on him and, and his reaction was justified 100% as a coach, as someone who is going in there, trying to lead a team and organization to another Super Bowl again, which is not easy to go to back to back Super Bowls, let alone one in general for the miscues to happen the way that they did at a consistent clip in that second half kind of just left him almost, I, I feel like beside himself because it's yeah. like the pass interference by Eli Apple, you get a stop on back-to-back -back penalties, on back-to-back -back times, 
Mm-hmm. Um, back-to-back, back-to-back plays, back-to-back series, whichever it, it could, is. It could have been, yeah. Um, you, you find a way to get a stop multiple times, and then you go and commit an unnecessary penalty. Like, dude, if you're dropping back into coverage, you have to assume at third and nine, it's going to be something that has to get past the sticks. The fact that he bit down and had to hold the receiver... Bro, if you're insecure about your man coverage capabilities, give give him a couple give him a couple steps. Don't 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 grab him like that. There have been so many times in his career where they have targeted him specifically for this reason. He's the weakest link, and he's always someone that's chatting on social media. So that's another instance where I'm like, players like that, like he should not have been resigned to this roster. That's besides the point. Um my biggest thing, man, that offensive line. 12 hits, bro. Joe Burrow had yeah, five no sacks. time all five day. Sacks. All five day. sacks. Yeah. And I, I will say, that third down play, the, the last offensive play that the Bengals had in that game. Oh, where Chris, he beat um, Chris Jones on the left side? Yeah. Chris was coming off. He was beat He beat the right tackle. Oh, my God. The, there, there's something that I don't think a lot of people noticed about that play. I saw it on the replay. Okay, there was a tight end on that side. He was supposed to chip. Well, maybe that wasn't the play call. But here's my thing. I I actually learned this from the AFC Championship game when we played, when the Patriots played the Chiefs uh, in Arrowhead Stadium back in like 2018, 2019. When it was third down, what New England did really well was that they chipped the defensive ends with tight ends. So they would basically just run three receivers. I mean, even Gronk was blocking. I mean, that's how... That was the type of protection they were trying to give Tom in that situation. It was like, okay, we got three receivers and you got what, like five or six DBs to handle. Can somebody win one on one? But they gave Tom time to work with. That type of play on third down, when you have Chris Jones on that side and you have a tight end, but he's just going out into the flat and he doesn't even chip him. Now, I don't know if that was the play call, if he's just designed to go out to the flat and not chip. But if he was supposed to chip and he didn't, that's on the tight end for not doing his job. I don't think that was the play call, though. I think the play call was just go out to the flat. That's on Zach Taylor. Zach Taylor's got to know in that situation, look, we got to go into pass pro. And you have to give Joe time to work with to read through his progressions. And the fact that they weren't in that type of pass pro where at least the tight end is chipping or just flat out blocking just to give the tackle at least a double team option on one of the best pass rushers in the league that you got to work on that. That has to be a better play call. That has to be better play design. You have to give Joe time to work with. And you could tell throughout the game that Joe didn't have time. I mean, five sacks, you said 12 quarterback hits. That's indicative of that. And granted, I know the offensive line could take a lot of heat and a lot of slack for that because they got to go out there and execute, but play design. How are you, you're not chipping? You're not. People got to understand also, for those of you that don't know, Chris Jones is an interior defensive lineman. If he's lining up on the outside, that is a he, straight pin he's your gonna, ear. He's going to pin I'm, your Everybody's ears. coming. Pin your ears back, get Joe. It's that simple. You got to chip. And yeah, you can't, you can't risk not doing it. Like you have to give your quarterback a chance to operate. Because look at the, I mean, look, I know Tyler Boyd got hurt. Obviously, that was a big hindrance for Cincy's offense. But the fact that you're not pass pro to the point where you're giving 
Joe the best targets to work with. I mean, look, you got Jamar Chase, you got T. Higgins, you got Hayden Hurst. Uh, they they had a backup wide receiver. I I'm just forgetting the guy's name. Oh, Irwin. Uh, yeah, Irwin, kind of like Wes Welker, Julian Edelman type yeah, of guy. Yeah. Um, you know, those are decent targets to be able to to hit, but I I, I just I it just baffles me that they just didn't go with this really stout like a pass a protection. Protect. Yep. Yep. Yeah, they call it pass pro, but you got to chip those DNs. You have to. Especially on that type of third down, where each play matters at that point in the game, I know that that was a little bit more of inside football there, but yeah, that that was probably just poor play design. You, especially on third down, you got to give Joe time to work with, and the fact that the fact that that the tight end just went out into the flat, didn't even chip or even like hit like a short like hit like a shoulder shrug on the way out. Nothing. Nothing. Make Chris hesitate or you know make a decision on oh he's gonna chip me let me come back and so- yeah. something because I, I i guarantee you this jamar t Irwin, hayden hurst somebody has a chance to win those one-on-one matchups defensively against casey or offensively against casey i should say and look if you have to throw a ball in where it's a 50 50 ball go for it but yeah pass protection could have been better on that one tackle got beat but yeah if you're a tight end, you got to at least chip on that play. So, but I will say we, we kind of covered the, the Bengals there, but I, I just want to get your quick thoughts about the Chiefs advancing to, to Super Bowl 57 and just like Patrick specifically. Like, bro, what five AFC championship games in a row, three Super Bowl trips. This is their what third Super Bowl trip in the last four years. Kev, this has to be one of the greatest starts by a quarterback we've ever seen in NFL history. I don't know about you, but that's how I see it. I mean, obviously, I mean, people call him baby goat, right? Obviously, that narrative kind of changed after Tom Brady went and beat him and kind of put him in his place in 2020 or 2021, whichever year that was. And Pat never skipped a beat, honestly. Like, yes, the Chiefs fell short and they didn't get to the Super Bowl last year. Obviously, they fell short in losing to the Super in the Super Bowl, but they're still there. It's hard to do the things that he's doing. It's hard to keep that level of success, that level of play at the level he's kept it. I mean, ankle injuries, setbacks, roster changes, it doesn't matter. Patrick Mahomes is that guy. He is the best quarterback of this generation. He is probably one of the best quarterbacks of all time based off what he can do. I don't know why I just basically ate my mic. Um... He's probably one of the greatest athletes to ever touch a football field because, again, what he's able to do with the arm that he has, flick of the wrist, escapability. He's no Lamar Jackson, but he is must-see television. Pat Mahomes on any team is automatically a Super Bowl contender. Kansas City truly hit the absolute lotto in drafting Pat Mahomes and him panning out the way that he did. It's shaping up to be another MVP, so he'll have two MVPs in five years. Three Super Bowl appearances and three a- and five AFC championship appearances. Like that is insane. Like that resume in just a short span right there is more than a lot of quarterbacks have in a career. So for the sake of the topic, Patrick Mahomes is him. He is definitely that guy. As much as I love Joe Burrow, I, I we've talked about it. It is Pat and then it's Joe. Josh Allen is at a far distance be- behind. 
because he hasn't been able to eclipse or even get to the next step. Dude, it's it's just insane. What Pat is able to do even on one foot, shout out to Pat, man. There's, there's not really much else I can, I can really say, to be honest. I mean, Kev, like you said, I mean, at this point, if you were to look at just his resume right now, he's not even 30 yet. Kev, this is a Hall of Fame resume already. I mean, he's already at that point. And you can make a very good case that he may not even be in his prime yet. I mean, like you said, I think this year, without a doubt, this is going to be a runaway MVP as far as I see it. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be uh, unanimous. Probably not. You know, Justin Jefferson may get a vote. Jalen will probably get a vote. Yeah, but I mean... I think Pat is going to dominate the MVP voting, but I just what he was able to do Sunday night on one foot was just spectacular as far as I see it. Because going up against a team like the Bengals in that situation where it seemed as if the Bengals had the advantage going into that game, that was the narrative pretty much widespread going into that game. Maybe if you were a KC fan or if you were kind of leaning towards KC before that game, you know, maybe you thought differently, but. Just what Pat is able to do, just from a pure athletic perspective, he, he's in basically rare company as far as I see it. Athletically, is he the fastest quarterback? No. But what he's able to do is he's able to bounce out of the pocket, even on one foot, and still make these just wild, wacky plays that KC produces on game in and game out. And even on one foot, you know, there, there was this expectation going into this game that he was going to be strictly a pocket passer that did not happen and you know him putting his body on the line you know running potentially for um it was either a first down or just try to get the team into field goal range at the end of the game knowing that he only can really run run on one foot I, I mean guys respect that especially inside the locker room they know what he's capable of the fact that he's putting his body on the line knowing that he's not 100 that earns respect in the locker room and i think just the trajectory that he's on right now. The guy's going to be a rare company when it's all said and done. And yeah, I mean, like you said, Kev, five straight AFC championship games, three Super Bowl appearances, more than likely he's going to have two MVPs by the end of this season. He's off to a fantastic start. Obviously, you know, there are other quarterbacks that have had, you know, great success in their career. But the fact that Pat's been able to do it this quickly it's just phenomenal. I'm not even going to get into a GOAT argument yet because, I mean, Brady is far beyond um, any sort of discussion at this point, even though the Pats had a great start. Uh, Pat is not anywhere near that type of discussion yet as far as I see it. But I will say, just based off of the start that he's had, he's off to a great start. And we'll just see whether or not that it could translate in Super Bowl 57 when they go up against the Eagles in two weeks from now. But overall... Pat's a difference maker. It's honestly just flat out that simple. Yeah, but, I mean, we got we got to talk about another game though, because yeah. th that other game had a a different kind of feel to it. If yeah. that's one way to describe it, it didn't live up to the expectation that I think no. everybody had going into that game. And it, it's unfortunate injuries just plagued the 49ers in this game. So, Kev, do you want me to set this one up for you? You want me? I can set, set this one. I can set it one. I can set this one your way, man. Just because again, okay. we're we're both both we're both very similar in, in how we view it. So, Kyle, obviously, the Eagles go on and they and man, I can't really say they beat, but they they emerge victorious uh, against the 49ers here. Um, and like Kyle already said, man, the 49ers got plagued with injuries. Mm 
-hmm. There's really no way to say it. It has to be a version of a plague, a curse, because you go into this game, you're hyped, league's best defense, your quarterback gets hurt. Your backup quarterback gets hurt. Like, you're on your fourth string. Journeyman Josh, Josh, he gets hurt. And the Eagles, I mean, they capitalized to an extent, but, you know, like, did they really win? I'm I'm not taking away from what the Eagles did, but, again, for the sake of this segment, give me your thoughts on this Eagles victory. Uh, against the 49ers. Well, I mean, the Eagles did what they needed to do. They advanced Super Bowl 57. And, I mean, if you just look at the score, if you hadn't watched the game, you're like, oh, my God, the Eagles just smashed the 49ers. Then when you look at the game into context, this should have been just an easy game for the Eagles to walk away with. And their path to the Super Bowl this year might be the easiest that I've seen in quite some time. And, Kev, I mean, it was like you said in the lead-up. Injuries were the primary factor why the 49ers lost this game. Brock Purdy goes out with an elbow injury. I believe it's his UCL. Uh, it's that ulnar collateral ligament. And depending on how severe the injury is, you know, we could be looking at a lengthy rehab process for him. Hopefully it works out to his benefit where I think it's only a six-week recovery process if it's just a, a sprain. So hopefully that's the best case for him. But yeah, once he went out, there was really no chance that the 49ers had to win this game just because you have Josh Johnson fill in for Brock Purdy. I mean, Brock's off to a great start. You know, mind you, he's a rookie. And before this game, he hadn't really done anything to screw up the 49ers chances at winning a game. But Josh Johnson, this guy has hit what 13 NFL rosters. And then he goes out with a concussion. I mean, they were legitimately thinking about putting Christian McCaffrey as their fifth-string quarterback. They went back to Brock, and I think once Brock came in, I think he only threw one pass. I think it was like a small slip, like a slip screen, and that was it. They ran the ball every play from there on out, and all the Eagles had to do was stack the box and then just shut them down for three plays, and then the 49ers would punt. And all the, the Eagles had to do offensively was just not turn the ball over, and they played... I won't say conservative, but all they did was just limit the amount of plays where they could have potentially played with a turnover had they messed up an assignment, missed a pass, but they didn't. The Eagles played a pretty relatively solid game from beginning to end. Was it the most convincing win? No. They could have played a little bit better, but when you look at the score, 31-7, to they handled their business. They did what they needed to do. Of course, the circumstances definitely played against the 49ers in this one. But the Eagles won't care about that. The Eagles did what they needed to do. That's why they're going to Super Bowl 57. And when it comes to the 49ers, it's a sad end to their season. Obviously, you want to be able to compete in this stage of the season, you know, where you're potentially playing for a Super Bowl here. But once Brock got hurt, once Josh Johnson was out with a concussion, I know the 49ers won't say this publicly. They knew that game was over. Just with Brock not being able to throw the ball, I I don't even think he was really even gripping the ball properly just because I think, if I had to guess, at some point his arm was numb, or at least his hand was numb. He just wasn't able to really grip the ball effectively to be able to pass it. But, you know, once you get to that stage where you're just running the ball and you're a one-dimensional offense, they knew. Even Kyle Shanahan, I think I saw a camera shot. It was like about, I don't know, midway through the fourth quarter. You could tell that the writing was on the wall and 
there was no legitimate shot that the 49ers were going to have to get back into that game. So it's just unfortunate for the 49ers. They're still a good team. It's just injuries plagued them at the worst possible time, and it just happened to be at the most critical position at the quarterback spot. And, you know, unfortunately for them, they're going home. And it sucks because they just, they couldn't even really get into a competitive space because Brock got hurt so early. But, I mean, with that said, the Eagles are going to Super Bowl 57. The Eagles have been a dominant team this year. I got to say, they look like a really well-rounded team here going to Glendale in two weeks from now. And they're going to be a tough out when they go up against the Chiefs uh, when Super Bowl 57 kicks off. But good job for the Eagles advancing to Super Bowl 57. And it's just unfortunate with how things worked out for the 49ers in this game with injuries just being the primary reason why they lost this game. So, Kev, floor is yours. I mean, I definitely want to identify, right? The way that I led this up, I don't want people to think that, you know, the Eagles didn't deserve this or that this was something that <clears throat> was uh, was luck, right? Injuries happen. No matter what anybody says, you still have to win the game, right? There could have been an instance where Philly takes their foot off the gas pedal. There could have been an instance where Nick Sirianni dials up a bunch of pass plays to try to blow this game open. There's a bunch of what-ifs, right? Just like there are a bunch of what-ifs on the 49ers side because all you saw on social media was... If Brock Purdy doesn't get hurt, this is a different game. Oh, if uh, if John if Josh Johnson doesn't get hurt, they were they were they were they were moving the ball. They were effectively da 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 da. da. If uh, Christian McCaffrey gets put in at quarterback, da, da da da. What's the problem here? Injuries happen. It just happens to be that the 49ers got riddled with them in the worst possible way. No dirty hits. Nothing that was unnecessary. These things happen. Is it lucky? Not really. Players got hurt. Did Philly benefit from these injuries? Obviously. Of course, the other team is going to take advantage when quarterbacks get hurt. It's like Kyle said. You become one-dimensional. It's nobody's fault. You can't be mad at Eagles fans for being excited that they're going to the Super Bowl. You can't be mad if you hate the Eagles because they're going to the Super Bowl because it's like the, the Eagles didn't go out there and, and take Brock Purdy's arm and snap it off of a kneecap or on a wooden table and say, like, you know, like, I hate you. We, we're going to win or, or screw you. This is what we're going to do to win. Like, no, this happens. The Eagles capitalize. They're going to the Super Bowl and they have a very well-rounded team. You can run the ball. You can pass the ball. They have a good defense. They have a great pass rush. They have a good coaching staff. Has their schedule been favorable? Yes. Have their playoff matchups up to this point been favorable in terms of the Giants beat an overrated Vikings team, and then they stomped them. And then the San Francisco 49ers get hurt, and then they stomped them. I mean, what? What are you going to say? Well, Patrick Mahomes on one ankle in two weeks. Well, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. Elijah Mitchell didn't play today, so maybe that would have been different. Like, again, it all goes off of what ifs. The Eagles executed, took advantage. They won. They're moving on to Arizona. It is what it is. Now, Kyle... I, what I want to ask you, this is this is the part where I want to kind of take this and, and flip it to the 49ers. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're frustrated as an organization. You're frustrated as a player. Things aren't going your way. How this game escalated in the way that it did, absolutely no place for it in the NFL. Are you talking Trent, about just... just ahead, the, go, Trent go Williams and, and how he reacted throwing uh, Kayvon Wallace to the ground like a child in the middle of a scuffle. And then you, then you have Greenlaw punching at the ball multiple times out of frustration, which, you know, again, we understand it was the ball, but you can't do that. God forbid you miss, you punch them. And then how the 49ers just pretty much acted as, as, as a team in that second half. I mean, w what are your thoughts on, on how the 49ers basically threw tantrums? Well, 
I mean, for me, I basically attributed it to just a lack of discipline. And Kev, I mean, let's not get this lost in translation here. The 49ers defense, even though that Brock Purdy got hurt and you could tell the offense was stifling just because they couldn't get anything consistently going. They were playing extremely well in portions of that first half. So the way that I see it is the defense started falling apart when they were getting these costly penalties over and over and over again. I mean, I believe in the drive where the Eagles broke the tie from seven to seven and ended up getting a touchdown to make it 14 to 17. I believe they had three penalties as a unit on that drive alone. And these were costly penalties. Some of them were on third down and just, you have to have better situational awareness in those, in those circumstances. And, you know, obviously Josh Johnson made it kind of worse because he ended up fumbling the snap on a drive underneath the two minute warning. And then the 49ers defense has to work with a limited field behind them. And then the Eagles cash in on another touchdown to extend the lead 21 to seven. And it just seems like at that point, like the 49ers defense, they were already on their heels to begin with. They were already probably frustrated about the circumstances. And I think it's just this internal feeling. It's like, man, it's just not our day today. And on top of that, you have to go out more. You just got to go out harder to try to make plays to get it back into your favor, to just swing some sort of momentum in your favor. And then to me, what really kind of set this whole downward spiral for their defense was, I believe, on an Eagles punt, they ran into the kicker. And it wasn't just running into the kicker where it's a five-yard penalty. It was a 15-yard penalty for roughing the kicker. So, or roughing the punter, I should say. And and then you have the situation where you have Greenlaw p- punching at somebody like three or four times after the whistle. You have Trent Williams uh, getting involved in shenanigans. Like, it just, it seemed as if just the pressure finally got to them and they fell underneath the pressure. They broke. And, you know, I think it was just a multitude of circumstances that just kind of combined all together and, you know, once those circumstances come together or those consequences come together, you're going to have that type of result. And it just, it was an ugly finish uh, to the season for the 49ers as a unit. Obviously you don't want to have injuries be the primary reason why, but you know, then you just have these costly turnovers and not costly turnovers, these costly mistakes defensively guys getting hit for unnecessary roughness penalties, unsportsmanlike conduct penalties. Like it's just, it was just an unmitigated disaster as far as I see it when, when it came to the 49ers. But all of it really stemmed from Brock and her. I think if Brock stayed healthy throughout that game, I think we have an entirely different situation in this game. It just didn't work out that way. But as far as I see it, you know, you, you just have to be better underneath the pressure. And you still got to perform to the best of your abilities. Obviously, these guys try to. It's just, they just have that better situational awareness. And they just can't. They can't let their emotions get the best of them. And unfortunately, for some players on that defensive side, I think the pressure got to them, their emotions got to them, and it cost them. Unfortunately for the 49ers, they're going home. The Eagles are moving on. But what are you going to do? Injuries played the primary factor in this game. And defensively, they tried to make it close, but the Eagles just made the plays that needed to be made. The 49ers didn't help themselves by basically shooting themselves in the foot foot with just unnecessary penalties. And that's it. 
honestly, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have anything to say or add on top. I mean, when you talk about undisciplined, that's the key word. 11 penalties for the 49ers. Like, just, I mean, it was one after another after another. Face mask, roughing, in, roughing, the, uh, roughing the kicker, uh, pass interference, holding. They just, they, they look checked out. And I would probably say the writing was on the wall the moment Brock got hurt. I mean, Josh Johnson, I have no idea how long he's been with the team. I don't know if he's been the backup since Purdy was inserted. I don't know when they signed him. But the point is, once he went into the game, I feel like all the momentum just went away. And not even momentum. I feel like all hope left the souls of all 49ers fans and and even 49ers players because the guy that got you there isn't there. And uh, for those of you that are saying... Brock Party should have played through it. Um, how could you not be able to throw the football at your job? Or how hard could it be? You know, because social media tends to think that they could do the jobs better. I don't think you understand. When you hurt your UCL, which is the ligament in your elbow, you can't really squeak, grab, throw, like how you're the throw. I'm not stuttering on purpose here. I'm just I'm baffled at how people are trying to create this as Brock isn't man enough, isn't tough enough. He shouldn't even be out there. If you can't handle a little elbow injury, wrap him up, tape him up, whatever. Dude, you can't do anything when your freaking ligament is out. Like, it, it, it could be torn. It could be ruptured. It could be sprained. Do you really want him out there making his life worse? Like, what if it? what if he ruptures it? What if he makes it worse to the point where he can't even move his arm? Like, people have to understand, yes. This is an important game for the 49ers, but if Brock Purdy is hurt to the point where he can't do his job, do you really think he doesn't want to be out there? So let's let's pump the brakes before we go and question somebody's uh, want or drive to want to play this game. At the end of the day, it is a game, and Brock gave it his all. I mean, he tried to throw a pass, and I'm assuming when he probably let that ball go, he probably said, Yo, Kyle, I can't do this. Like, this hurts too much. And once you become one-dimensional, that's kind of what happens. So... You know, kudos to Philly for going to their second Super Bowl in five years. And, you know, the 49ers will be back. But what's looming in the free agent market, or should I say in the offseason, is going to be all the unrestricted free agents that San Francisco has to either make a decision on re-signing or letting them walk away. Yeah, but I actually want to go over this uh, this free agent list uh, just because I think people need to know how extensive this list is. I'm actually going to pull up the tweet from Adam Schefter because this is actually pretty insane so just give me a second as i as i scroll through here so kev check this out they're key unrestricted free agents i'm going to go in order as adam has it listed so they got an offensive lineman uh mike mcglinchy they got jimmy garoppolo uh, jimmy ward who is one of their defensive captains uh they've got robbie gould they got tashawn gibson they got samson ebukam and emmanuel mosley those are just some of the guys from this list. There's a couple more here, but I just kind of wanted to hit some of the, the bigger name players. This defense is going to go through a little bit of a change. Now, granted, you know, they still have some good players on the defensive side. I mean, they've got Nick Boza, who's probably on his way to win defensive player of the year, or at least be in contention for it. Um, Ebukam, Ebukam is nice. You know, he's, he's somebody that needs to be respected. Um, obviously Robbie Gould has been there forever. Guy's just a legend when it comes to their 49ers. Jimmy Garoppolo, um, we'll see what happens. He'll with probably him. leave. He, He'll more get than a likely, bag. More than likely, he's on the way out. Um, Jimmy Ward. I, I think Jimmy Ward is going to be somebody that... Could require, Jimmy Nice. 
Jimmy's going to get either a nice paycheck for the 49ers or somebody else is going to be willing to get give it give him one. So these are going to be very interesting to see uh, moving forward with the 49ers. But, Kev, I, I'm not going to count them out. I, I think the one thing... Hell no. The, the one thing that is nice about them is that they are moving off of Jimmy. And granted, Jimmy was only on a one-year contract, and that was, what, a $10 million contract? So it wasn't like no, that. No, I don't, I, don't, I don't even think it was that high. I think it was incentivized that made it that high. Oh, okay. What was the base? Like five? I don't remember. I I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to look it up, but it was only a one-year deal. It wasn't anything crazy from what I can remember. But look, more than likely, they're going to have to make a decision between Brock or Trey. $7 million. Okay. 6.5 of it was guaranteed, but the incentives had it going up to a specific number. Okay. Because remember, every game he won, he got like, I don't know how many hundreds like, of thousands of dollars. Like it was like 250 Yeah, I mean, and then obviously they went out and won as many as they did when he was up there, so he definitely made a couple extra mil, if not a mil at least. Yeah, he he, he could have maybe gotten around 10 maybe. Because it's, it's games won and passing touchdowns, and then, of course, you know, the farther that they get, I think that yeah. he was going to, yeah. So anyway. But no, I, I mean, when it comes to the 49ers as a whole, I think they'll be fine. Uh, they, they got a good coaching staff there with Kyle Shanahan. This was just a game that injuries were... Injuries just played them. It was that simple. It, it, bro, you can't even be competitive in that scenario with how things transpired in that game. So, I, I mean, it is what it is. But they, they'll be back. I'm not worried about them. Um, but they're going to have some free agents that they're going to have to attend to this offseason. But um, before we get into uh, our NBA topics, I, I just have to ask you just straight up, just first impressions of what Super Bowl is going to be like. We got the Eagles going up against the Chiefs. Um, I'm torn because I, I want to give the Eagles their flowers and say, you know, it's it's still hard to make a Super Bowl, but like kind of like we outlined, um, they didn't really have the toughest road here as opposed to Kansas City having to fight through, you know, the battle with Jacksonville that was again surprising in and of itself, and then you have to go and and fight through this 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 tough matchup with Joe Burrow and you come out of the other end, uh come out on the other end, and then we're talking about Philadelphia kind of like walking through like, yeah, the Giants were the Giants, but I mean, that wasn't necessarily competitive when you look at it. <laughs> and then you go and you have to deal with injuries here. So, I mean, I, I think that Philly overall is a good team and Philly is prepared, is going to be prepared. It's going to be a matter of, are they going to be able to deal with Pat? Have they, have they had somebody of that caliber all season? Not really. So... You know, obviously, we'll give predictions as the as the weeks go on because the Super Bowl is about two weeks from today, if not two weeks exactly from today. But I think that it has the potential to be a very, very competitive game as Philadelphia has the best pass rush in football. Obviously, Kansas City has the best quarterback in football. And Jalen Hurts is probably one of the more dynamic players in football. So there is room to have an entertaining game. And I think it has the potential to be a very, very, very good one, to be honest with you. Pat Mahomes versus Jalen Hurts is going to be very entertaining as a whole. Yeah, okay. I honestly really couldn't add a lot more to that. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how healthy Casey's going to be going into that game. Granted, you know we're two weeks away from that game, so there's plenty of time for some of these chief players to get a little bit healthier. I, to what extent they'll be healthy, time will kind of tell. But, I mean, if the Eagles were to play the Chiefs right now, I'd have to favor the Eagles by a mile just because... With that defense going up against a, a battered Chiefs team, especially offensively, Kev, like 
the Chiefs were down to like their fifth or sixth string wide receiver at one point. Uh, there, there was a guy. I, I'm forgetting the guy's name on the Chiefs. I think his name Darius was Marcus. Tony? No, 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 no. Oh. Marcus. It was like they were really down on the jet, on the depth chart uh, when it came to their wide receiving core. But no, I mean Kadarius Tony got hurt. Um, Travis Kelsey wasn't even 100 percent going into this game. Pat was clearly hindered by that ankle injury. I mean, like I said, had the game, had the Super Bowl been played today with the Eagles going up against the Chiefs, the Eagles would run away with this game as far as I see it, just because the Chiefs are just too hurt. Now, granted, two weeks away, we've got a long way to go. And I do think that the Chiefs will be in a much better position to be able to compete against a team like the Eagles than they are right now. So they'll get that week off. They'll be able to recover. Obviously, you know, the biggest concern is Pat moving forward. How viable is he going to be with that ankle injury going into Super Bowl 57? I think he'll be probably around like 90% when we get to that game. I don't know how significant this ankle injury is. Um, From what Andy Reid was saying a couple days ago before the ASU Championship game, this was not as worse as a similar ankle injury that he suffered a couple years back. So, Maybe that's a positive sign moving forward for them. But overall, I mean, they just got to get healthy. Obviously, Kadarius Tony uh, went out in that game. I think they could definitely utilize his services if he's ready to go. Uh, McCole Hardman is back, but he re-aggravated that pelvis injury uh, that he missed a significant amount of time uh, before the AFC Championship game. This was his first game back since week nine. So you'd have to go back a couple of months since we've seen McCole Hardman on the field. And, you know, to me, the biggest thing right now is the, is the injuries defense is the injuries that the chiefs sustained uh, in this game. And that they, they were dealing with before the AFC championship game, when it comes to the Eagles, the Eagles are in prime position here. As far as I see it, the Eagles are in a great spot. They've had a very easy path to get to super bowl 57. They beat the brakes off of the giants. They beat a battered 49ers team that frankly was running out of options at quarterback and honestly, they really haven't had to ask Jalen to do too much. And even with him dealing with the shoulder injury, I don't think he's 100%. I think he's still dealing with that. I think it's a, a nagging injury that's probably hindering him to a certain extent uh, than he was previously before the injury. But they've gotten great contributions from the ground game. Defensively, they've just been sensational. I mean, Kev, uh, they've only given up, what, 14 points in the last two weeks? I mean, yep. they've been playing phenomenal defensively. And, and Hassan Reddick, oh my God, that man's he's, a, he's a beast. He needs to be it, in the discussion for defensive player too. It, he may not win it, but if Micah Parsons is in the conversation, Hassan Reddick definitely needs to be in it also. I, so basically just to round this out, I think we have a great game set for Super Bowl 57. I know Philly fans are going to be rocking whether they win or lose that game. Uh, they're going to go balls to the wall crazy for that game. They already and, are. And... With the Chiefs, the Chiefs are back in the same position as they have been the last couple of years. And this is another opportunity for the Chiefs to add another one to the resume. And uh, obviously, I know a lot of people talk about Pat uh, and the narrative about him being on this trajectory of being one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. But, you know, Andy Reid, Andy Reid is in a very similar position. Andy Reid is on this upper trajectory of being one of the best coaches that we've seen in NFL history. And I think people forget how good he is as an offensive coach. And you know, the way that he's been able to mentor Pat and 
lead him on this path. I, I don't know if Pat would be as successful as he is without Andy Reid, and I think I got to give Andy a lot of respect going into this game. But overall, I think we had a great setup. Obviously, we still got a, a little bit of ways to go with this game being two weeks away, but overall, this is going to be a good Super Bowl as far as I see it. It also means the uh, the NFL is, is, is at, it's at its end. It's two weeks, up. this will be uh, our sample before we have to go however many months without Sundays in football. So these two weeks will prepare me mentally. We'll prepare Kyle mentally, and we'll uh, we'll figure it out as we get there. But at least we will have basketball to talk about. Yep. Oh, 100%. And uh, the, the first topic of the NBA discussions that we have on deck for you guys is we're going to talk a little bit about the Milwaukee Bucks and Giannis Antetokounmpo. So the Bucks played the Pelicans on Sunday night and gave them a good beatdown. Giannis was just a man on a mission. Drops 50 points. Shot 20 of 26 from the field. 13 rebounds. 4 assists. What is there more to say? Giannis is on an MV type of trajectory this season. Uh, as far as I see, he puts himself in a category alongside Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, Jason Tatum, and probably Luka Doncic as like a fifth candidate for MVP. And... With the way that Giannis has been playing this year, he's been playing phenomenal. 31 points per game, averaging 12 rebounds per game, and 5 assists per game. I don't know about you, Kev. Those seem like MVP numbers to me. So, Kev, I'll kick this one to you. Just describe the type of impact that Giannis is bringing to the table for the Bucks this season and whether or not that he should be in the MVP discussion at this point. I mean, we know he has the pedigree to do it, right? He's done it back-to-back. Um... This is no surprise that he's putting up these numbers. And the interesting part is all of these MVP candidates are within the top three seeds of their respective conferences. Nikola Jokic is top two in the West. The 76ers with Joel Embiid is number two. Jason Tatum uh, with the Celtics at number one. Like everybody that is at the top is playing at a high caliber level. And Giannis, this is his second 50 point game of the year. It is not surprising that he is going out here and he is playing as aggressive as he is, as efficiently as he is. And we know that he's a defensive anchor as well. Um, altering shots. He may not get all the statistics or all the block shots and things like that. But what Giannis is able to do on the interior, all around the perimeter. And then, of course, you, you throw in the rebounds and him being able to facilitate to a certain degree. And you have to say, he has got to be one of the most valuable players in this league. It's 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 not really a, a, a up for debate when you're doing things like this year in and year out, averaging over 30 and, and whatever have you. And your team is playing efficient. That's the key for me. When you're talking about MVP, the team also has to be doing well. You don't just give the MVP award to somebody who's in eighth or ninth place because they're statistically averaging a bunch of points, but the team isn't doing well. For me, that's it. you have to be able to bring them up. The team has to be still good around you. And for that, I mean, when you have, obviously, Drew Holiday, Bobby Portis, Brooke Lopez, and so many other countless veteran players that are used to this or are familiar with what it is that Giannis brings to the table. And, of course, Chris Middleton, his running mate, they let Giannis be Giannis. I mean, 20 of 26? Like, how much, how much more efficient can you be? And the fact that Giannis isn't necessarily known for his shooting um, in terms of his three-point percentages and all these other things... And he's still going out there. And people know that he can't shoot and you still can't stop him. I think that that just speaks volume as to how much of an animal, how relentless Giannis can be. 
And the crazy part is he was efficient from the field today. He was three of four behind the arc. Like, you can't ask the guy that struggles to shoot to do much more than what he did. Giannis Antetokounmpo 100% is in the MVP conversation, and it is games like this where you can easily make an argument and a case for him to say, yeah, no, he's definitely got to be, you know, top three in this discussion. He's not going to be outside of that. And if you think so, I think you're kind of crazy. And, you know, Kev, just to kind of piggyback off one of the points that you made about him hitting his shots behind the three-point line, I believe the shot that got him to 50 was a three-point shot. So, hey, I I give him credit. Obviously, he probably knows internally that he's not the best three-point shooter that we've ever seen in NBA history. But the fact that he has the confidence to be able to at least take some of those shots, knowing that that's not the strongest part of his game, I got to give him credit for that. But Kev, I mean, I mean, you outlined it perfectly as far as I see it when it comes to his status as an MVP candidate. He's definitely in that conversation as far as I see it. You know, dropping a 50-point performance, this one being his second one of the year, that's impressive. And like you said, Kev, the fact that everybody knows that Giannis is just an absolute beast, they, they call him a Greek freak for the reason of what he just did this past weekend. It's astounding as far as I see it with how he's able to just do it night in and night out. And the fact that he's been relatively healthy throughout his career, the fact that he's always available for the Bucks when they need him to be, that's a huge credit to just the work ethic that he puts not only on the court, but off the court as well when he's practicing, you know, before the games even take place. And you know, really the trajectory that, that Giannis has been on the last couple of years, it's really been something to admire. And, you know, obviously when it comes to just guys who have won the MVP recently, it's mostly been Nikola Jokic. And Jokic, the last couple of years has been sensational. He, as far as I see, he definitely deserves those MVPs. But the fact that Giannis is going out here and just dominating these games left and right, and the fact that he's just basically doing it at the rim it's phenomenal. I will say when it comes to his skill set, I think some people may under underestimate not the right word. I think underappreciate or undervalue him because I think the way that just Milwaukee is viewed is they're a great regular season team, but when we get to the playoffs, they become more of a a grimy and grittier type of team. And it may not be the most fun basketball to watch, but despite whatever style that Milwaukee puts on the floor, Giannis is always there, and he's just producing at a dominant clip. I mean, there could be a game where, look, you have a low-scoring game, and like the, the score could be like 95 to 90. Giannis could go out there and drop you 45. Or he could drop you 35 to 40. And he could carry literally about half the team's points. And even in this game that we saw against the Pelicans this past weekend, Yoffit scored 135 points. That's a good game as far as I see it from an offensive perspective from a whole team. Giannis scored 50. It's not half, but it's more than a third. And it's kind of getting closer to that 40% mark of the total team's points. And the fact that he can just go out there and be assertive and be dominant and just say, you know what? 
It's my type of night. I got good matchups, and I'm going to exploit them. And those are going to be the reasons why that we win. I think that's a winning formula as far as I see for the Bucks. And as long as he stays healthy and he keeps producing at this clip, he's definitely going to have a say uh, for the MVP as far as I see it when we reach the end of the season. I mean, we all know what Giannis brings to the table. We know that he is going to give it everything he has. And I'm not saying that other NBA players don't, but there's a different kind of intensity when it comes to Giannis because of what he's gone through and how he came into the league. I think that chip on his shoulder is something that yeah. he really feeds off of and he really wants people to understand like you and I aren't different we're not on the same level I will outwork you and I think that that is in huge homage to working with Kobe Bryant um, earlier in his career and getting that mentality you know that Mamba type of mentality to say no matter what you think you do I am going to be better and I'm going to get better. And he's shown it year in and year out. He finds ways to improve, become more efficient and find different ways to get his team into position to compete for an NBA championship. Yeah. And you know, the funny thing is when I look at guys like Giannis and compare them to people like Joel Embiid or Nikola Jokic, I mean, granted, those are, those are big guys in the NBA. It seems as if he's a little bit more intense on the court than those guys. Joel kind of gets, Joel's kind of funny to me because he, like whenever he gets going, he like, especially if he gets like an and one, he starts trolling and he really starts getting the, the crowd involved and starts hyping them, hit the whole crowd up. But it, it seems like Giannis is a little bit more intense as a player. And I, and I appreciate that because I think the level of intensity from superstars nowadays it doesn't seem as defined as it probably was with guys like Kobe back in the day or, or Jordan. You know, those guys, I mean, not only were they intense, like, I mean, they brought it every single night. And Giannis is in that type of category as far as I see it. Is is he like somebody on like the same lethal mentality as Kobe with like that Black Mamba persona? No. But I know what it looks like and and Giannis he's not to that extent but I could tell that he brings a level of intensity night in and night out that has to be appreciated and it's 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 different than what we see from somebody like Jokic Jokic seems more laid back in his personality but he's just he's a silent killer Jokic is one of those guys that won't even say anything and he could drop 30 to 40 on you and not even say a word which is kind of crazy so you know, it, it's just kind of two ends of the of a spectrum as far as I see it. Giannis is a little bit more intense, kind of wears his emotions on his sleeve a little bit. Joel is, is you could kind of put him in that same category as well. But then when you compare guys like him to Jokic, Jokic is just he, Jokic will just do it with a mean mug, or he'll just do it with just a straight face, and it's like, all right, I'm just gonna go out, I'm just gonna go to work, drop thirty points on you, get ten to fifteen rebounds. And with the way the Nuggets run their offense, I'm going to get eight assists too. So, it, it, to me, like this whole MVP discussion comes around three people. Giannis, Jokic, and Embiid. They're all big guys. They're dominating the league. And Tatum. And Tatum. We will not ignore Tatum. True. True. Will not. I, but, I, but I will say, just you know, when it comes to Giannis and Embiid this weekend, I, bro, they dominated. And speaking of Embiid, bro, we, we, got, we got to talk about Embiid. So, this is actually fun because since we were just talking about Jokic too, the 76ers and the Nuggets 
went at it this weekend where we saw Joel Embiid go up against the two-time reigning MVP in Nikola Jokic. And Embiid got the better of Jokic. And the 76ers get the edge over the Nuggets. And probably one of the more compelling games that we've seen in the regular season at this point with the Nuggets being a fantastic team in the Western Conference. The 76ers are in it as well in the Eastern Conference. But Embiid, he stole the show as far as I saw as far as I saw it. 47 points, 18 rebounds. The guy was just a machine as far as I see it. And Kev, to kick this one to you, how impressive do you think Joel Embiid was going up against it's wow. Going up against the two-time reigning MVP in Nikola Jokic and one of the best teams in the Denver Nuggets this past weekend. I think Joel welcomes the challenge. I mean, I think that Joel is also tired of coming in second to to Jokic's MVP for the last two years. I mean, obviously at this point, they're not rivals or anything like that. They don't hate each other. They always compliment each other and and, and say that they're incredible, uh, formidable opponents. And obviously the 76ers and the, the Nuggets. But I know that Embiid plays with that chip on his shoulder as well. Like I know he's thinking like, damn, this is the guy that beats me every time. This is the guy. This is the reason why I don't have an MVP. This is the guy that is always in my way to at least get some kind of accolade. And he takes it personally. I know that Joel Embiid is also tired of losing in general, and the 76ers are climbing up the standings in the Eastern Conference. But let's not forget that Denver played very well in that first half. And there were a multitude of instances where Denver led by double digits. And Philly clawed their way back, and their defense held it together as well. I mean, they found a way to turn it around in that second half, and Philly scored 38 in the third and 30 in the fourth. And they found a way to limit Denver to 46 points in the second half. So, I mean, when you talk about that, that's that's, that's a massive swing. 48, what is that, 46? And then Denver, or excuse me, then Philly scored 68. They almost dropped 20 more points on them in that next quarter, or that next half. So, Philly came out to play. They played efficient as well. I mean, when you're looking at the stat line, of course, they shot 51% from the field, and they also shot 51% from three. They were efficient, to say the least. And everybody was able to contribute. Obviously, you get 14 from Tobias Harris, 47 from Embiid, 17 from Harden, 13 from Melton, 14 from Nang, 13 from Maxi. That is how you win. You got to feed your big. You got to find a way to get him involved early. Obviously, Joel shoots over 50% from the field here at 18 of 31, 4 of 7 from 3. And he also goes out there and gets you 18 boards. Joel Embiid did everything he needed to do in order to carry this team to victory and come back from a very large deficit, again, from a multitude of times. And he was able to do it on both ends also. Three steals, two blocks. Can't really ask much more from your big guy, man. When he goes out there and he's just making Jokic look silly. I mean, he had a step-back dagger three over Jokic in the final minute. And it was just kind of crazy to watch that because I was actually watching that game live while my boys were here uh, for the weekend. And that game was on, and we were just kind of watching. We were like, damn, Denver's going to run away with this. <laughs> Philly claws their way back. Before you know it, I turn the TV back on, or I look over, and I'm like, wait a minute, what the hell? Wasn't Denver just up like 15 points? And Philadelphia comes out on top, and they win by seven. Uh, not to take away from Jokic, but Jokic kind of got locked up a little bit in that third and fourth quarter. And not locked up. His life was made difficult by uh, P.J. Tucker. P.J. Tucker is not a scorer by any means. P.J. Tucker is not someone that's going to give you 15 points or shoot efficiently or get a lot of assists. But he is going to be someone that is going to pester the best player on a regular basis. 
and he was matched up with Jokic a lot of times, which made Jokic have to pass out or, uh, you know, he didn't want to put himself in a position where he was going to get himself into foul trouble or anything like that. And again, Jokic seemed to hesitate for whatever reason in that second half whenever P.J. Tucker was on him. So P.J. does his job. Jokic obviously still puts out a great game. I mean, he had 24-9-8. and eight. Again, just the fact that <laughs> the fact that your starting center got more assists than the combination of your two starting guards is just ridiculous. But once again, here we are. So overall, what a game, what a show. And I love the fact that Joel Embiid kind of like jabbed at uh, Ben Simmons at the end of it in his postgame conference. He said, you know, I think we're long overdue for a win. And, you know, these guys keep me going and yada, yada. I'm like, I'm paraphrasing. And then I think he said something along the lines of, as long as nobody fakes an injury, we're fine. And I was like, Bro, this man's so petty. And that's what Kyle was saying. He's got a different kind of feel to him. He may not be as intense on the court <laughs> as Giannis, but he's got his ways to go about carrying himself. I just thought that was funny as hell. But overall, man, that was a great game to watch. You know, Kev, my mind kind of wanders here. I imagine when Doc Rivers was going over the game plan, going into this game, I imagine this is a scenario where it's like, look, we got Joel Embiid going up against Nikola Jokic. And I imagine Doc knows what Joe was capable of. Everybody knows what he's capable of. And I think there was a point of emphasis. It's like, look, we don't get these head on, uh, these one-on-one matchups where you got Joel going up against Nikola very often. Yeah. yeah, they're very rare, especially with both teams being out of conference. And... The fact that Joel dominated the game in this manner, and not only that, hit some critical shots that pretty much iced it at the end, bro, that, that's really a testament to what Joel can do essentially on a night-in, night-out basis. And, you know, when it comes to Joel, Joel is always going to have a chip on his shoulder, and he's not afraid to back down from any sort of challenge. And, Look, going up against Nikola Jokic and the Denver Nuggets, that is no easy challenge because even as we sit here right now, Denver's still sitting in first place in the Western Conference. They're one of the best teams in the NBA this year. And at points throughout that game, they definitely showed what type of team that they are. But the fact that Philly showed that they could withstand the pressure and that they could show a little bit, they could kind of work their way through the adversity of the game and the fact that Joel was able to effectively lead them not only to tie the game, to come back from the deficit that they were in, but to eventually take the lead. And then for him to knock down essentially some critical shots that would win the game for them. It's got to feel pretty good, especially going up against a team like the Nuggets. And, you know, I'm not going to get into any sort of discussion about maybe this is something that we could see in an NBA finals matchup. It's way too premature to say that, but you know, as we sit here right now, I mean, you know, when you get these matchups of the number one seed in the Western Conference go up against the number two seed in the Eastern Conference, I mean, you just kind of live for these these moments. And the fact that Joel was able to step up in that manner and drop you 47 points, three away from 50, and then damn near put up 20 points in the process against an MVP candidate and the two-time reigning MVP in Nikola Jokic and essentially keep Jokic to a relatively pedestrian night. That's a good look on Joel moving forward. And I know we just talked about Giannis being in that MVP discussion 
uh, alongside Jokic. I mean, Embiid is right there with him as far as I see it. And look, we still have a couple months until we reach the playoffs. So there's plenty of opportunities for these guys to essentially jockey for a position to get that MVP along their side. But I have to say, you know, in this one-on-one matchup between Jokic and Embiid, Embiid definitely got the better of Jokic. And, you know, maybe this is one of those games where it sets Philly on a little bit of a kick here. Maybe they set up for a nice little winning streak where they get some momentum from a game like this where they were able to beat not only one of the best teams in the NBA, but potentially the best team in the NBA as far as I see it. So, great game from Joel. I know what he's capable of. I think everybody knows what he's capable of, and the guy could bring it on a night-in, night-out basis. But to do it against Jokic, there was a little bit of an extra extra challenge there. He rose to the occasion, and he executed, uh, I'm not going to say to perfection, but he executed at a very high level, and that's something to be commended as far as I see it. And uh, good on Joel. Honestly, I'll just leave it at that. We got to talk about this next game now. Mm. Mm. You are a Laker fan, so I got you. Mm. I'm here for mm. it. We, you sound like Skip Bayless, and I'm gonna need you to stop. Mm. I hate that. <laughs> I'm yeah. gonna get you to chill every time. Yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I, I don't make the God. face though. I, I like. I, I know. know. I know. It's just the, the sound effect is literally identical. It's hysterical. Well, we, 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 whenever we talk about the Lakers, that's just kind of my instinctual response. It just comes with the territory, bro. I don't blame you. The way that this game went, I just, I don't have much to say. The Celtics played the LA Lakers Saturday night. It was a very entertaining game, to say the least. However, it ended in a very questionable manner in regulation. So, Kyle, before we actually get into the nitty-gritty of what happened, what are your thoughts on the game as a whole and how you guys played? Because it looked like you guys were doing relatively well in terms of finding ways to score. We were in it. I mean, when I say we, I'm talking about the Lakers. I am a Lakers fan. I'm just putting that out there uh, just so I cover my bias there. No, I thought the Lakers were competitive against the Celtics. And the Celtics are one of the best teams in the NBA. If I remember off the top of my head, I believe the Celtics have the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. And the fact that we were in a dogfight and we actually had an opportunity to win that game at the end of regulation against a team like the Celtics. I mean, good on the Lakers. I mean, we, we look at the Lakers this year. The Lakers are not that good. They're basically at the bottom of the barrel in the Western Conference. I mean, they're not in the same category as teams like the Rockets or the Spurs. or a little bit better than that, but not by much. And even though that they have LeBron James, Anthony Davis at their disposal, it's just they just can't rise to the occasion consistently to be a competitive team in the Western Conference. But this game specifically, they had their chances. Patch Beverly gets a put-back dunk late in the fourth quarter. They go up by two. Uh, then they give up a bucket on the other side. And then it's a tie game. And then it all comes down to this one drive by LeBron James where he was clearly fouled on the way up for a layup. And... Kev, it was it was an egregiously missed call. And look, look, when it comes to LeBron's reaction, I understand being frustrated about not getting the call that could have essentially won you the game. 
But Kev LeBron's almost 40, and the way that he reacted, he was being dramatic like a like a five-year-old. Like not getting his way. It's just to me, it was a little over dramatic as far as I see. Obviously, he didn't get the call, and it, it was clearly a, a missed call as far as I saw. It, I mean, literally, it was hand on arm on his way up as he's going for the layup. And the refs didn't, didn't call it. And even in the pool report or the refs report uh, after the game, the NBA even admitted that they missed a call. It wasn't even close. It's just, I think refs get in their head that unless it's just blatant where there's clearly a foul in those last second moments and situations, they're not going to call it. But to me, this is one where you clearly have to call it. And look, LeBron more than likely would have knocked down one of two free throws had he gotten the call. LeBron's not the greatest free free throw shooter in the world, but even knowing it's LeBron, I, I would expect him to get one. Maybe not two, but definitely one. And that could have been enough for the Lakers to get a huge road win against a team like the Celtics, but the game goes into overtime. Celtics knock down the majority of their shots, and they end up winning the game. So when it comes to the call itself, it, it, it's a bad call. The, it, the fact that it wasn't called is just egregious as far as I see it. The refs got to make that call. But the Lakers could have played better in overtime, and they simply just didn't do it. And that's really been the Lakers' MO this year is – Offensively, they've played good enough to win games, but defensively, they just can't step up to the occasion and make critical stops on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, Kev, great that this game went into overtime, but they gave up 125 points. You just can't have that. You have to score at least 125 to 130 points a night. And granted, you know, you got AD, you got LeBron, but you can't rely on LeBron to drop 35 to 40 points at 37, 38 years old consistently. And it come in these losses. Eventually, he's just going to run out of gas. We're at more than halfway through the season. And I think LeBron's dropped five 40-point games. And I think there's only been like one or two of those games that they've won. There's like sub-500 when I think he's dropped 40-plus. I may have that wrong, but even the fact that LeBron is playing this well in his late 30s, the fact that they're not getting wins... It's just indicative of where the team is. The team is just not good enough to be able to compete at a high level to potentially being a playoff caliber team. We're not talking championship caliber. We're talking playoff caliber. They're just not at that point yet. And, you know, in this one game specifically, they had a chance to get a huge road win that could have set them up for a good little stretch. Maybe they get in a little momentum kick before we reach the all-star break, but it didn't work out in their favor. The refs missed a blatant foul call. And, you know, the Lakers are still sitting at a sub-500 record. So, it's just kind of more the same as far as I see it. Lakers got to play better. Or they could be sitting at home. And they could miss a play-in tournament situation, which I think would just be an outright failure for the Lakers this year. So, I'll just kind of leave it at that. I just, I I have to... I have to ask how Patrick Beverly was damn near the second leading scorer on this team in this game. Anthony Davis didn't demand for the ball in that second half, especially in that overtime period. It looked like he was just 
faltering back to letting Braun do what he wanted to do, albeit Braun had 41, 8, and 9. So, I mean, who's to say that Braun wasn't going to get every shot anyway? But Anthony Davis just does, does not look aggressive. He just does not look like he wants the ball. He doesn't want to be in the spotlight. He doesn't want to have the attention on him. I don't know, because in this game, it didn't seem like Anthony Davis wanted anything to do with winning. Yeah, he had 16 points and 10 rebounds, but I mean, we're talking about Anthony Davis, the second best player on this team. Mr. Plainclothes Davis. Finally, graces us with his presence last week, and he goes and gives you 16 points in a rivalry game. And it's a historical rivalry game, not a division rivalry game or anything like that. You have to have your 38-year-old teammate carry the load with 41 points. I believe I saw a statistic somewhere where it said since, since Braun has turned 38, he's averaging over 37 points a game. That was a month ago. He turned 38 on December 30th. It is literally at this moment as we're recording January 30th. So for a month straight, he's averaged almost 40 points a game. And the Lakers have won maybe half of those games. Maybe even a little less. I don't know. What I'm getting at is the bad call aside, the Lakers have to find a way to help LeBron James. Patrick Beverly is probably the GOAT for going up to the referee and showing him a camera from a photographer or courtside somewhere, walking up and showing him a picture of the foul. You can see it zoomed in. Jason Tatum's hand is hitting LeBron James. Patrick Beverly gets teed up immediately. By no means did he deserve a tech because that was probably the funniest thing I've ever seen, while at the same time, probably the most G thing you can do and say, Yo, I'm just letting you know, you messed up pretty bad, and it's right here in your face. But uh, again, man, the, the Lakers show that they're competent. They can contend. They uh, they can fight games like this against better teams. But when it comes to just execution, when it matters the most, they were unable to do so. And yes, the foul call was probably mentally draining, exhausting. They probably were not, not checked out, but they were probably like, damn it, man, this, this could have been our game. So they were maybe mentally fatigued. But you, you got to find a way to push through that. And then Russell Westbrook, 414. Not a very good night from him coming off the bench as well. Negative 10 in the plus-minus scale. So five turnovers. Just overall, not a good look for him. I know that he didn't really contribute in this game. So the Lakers got to find a way to do better. The Celtics hold on for dear life. But, man, LeBron James is just on a historical tear. I don't think I've ever seen... I don't think the NBA has ever seen anything like this because th this man is literally carrying a franchise on his shoulders. At 38. At 38, bro. Like, we're not talking 28. We're talking 38. It's nuts. I, I mean, it's not from a lack of effort. I could tell you that. Hell no. This, this, this dude, I give the guy credit. I mean, you could love or hate LeBron. Tr trust me. Like, there's a lot of people that hate, hate LeBron. But, I mean, what he does, essentially now on a night-in, night-out basis, I mean, he's putting 30-plus on the board. And the fact that he's still producing at that type of rate at this stage of his career is nuts. It shouldn't just, be happening. I, I mean, I, Jordan wasn't this consistent at 38 years. Not old. even close. Not I don't even, even think, it, I don't even know if Jordan was what in his wizard stint. Yeah. At this point, I think Kobe yeah. had already retired. I think Kobe retired at the age of 37. So I, I don't really know of anybody producing at this clip at 38 years old in NBA history. Kareem Definitely was not. Kareem was pretty much on the way out at this point. He was a shell of himself at this point 
at 38 years old. But no, I just, it, it's like you said, Kev, it, they have to surround him with better talent. And look, when 80's on the court, you could definitely tell that the team is better than without him. But they need a more reliable shooter at the three spot. They they just don't have that. Or just a number three guy overall. They just don't have that. I mean, if you kind of look at their, if you look at their roster, I mean, is their number three option legitimately Dennis Schroeder or Russell Westbrook coming off the bench? Yep. It, I, I mean, I they shot 28% from three, bro. That's just not how you do it. I, like, I just, what are you supposed to do we're, with that? We're, we're not a three-point shooting team. We're, we're not. I, LeBron, I, I, I think there was a game where... Nine of 16 or something like that? Yeah, he was nine of 16. It was actually his career high in threes that he's made in a game. But you can't bank on him doing that. I think he's one of the worst three-pointing... He's one of the worst three-point shooters that we've seen in the NBA this year, just from a statistical standpoint. But, you know, I mean, look, if they traded for uh, Roy Hachimura, we'll see where he goes in his tenure with the Lakers. But, yeah, Kev, this, this, this ain't it. I can tell you right now, this ain't it. They just don't, they don't have a reliable third option because Russell's coming off the bench to get you shots. I mean, LeBron and AD, that, that's a good one too. But you need that third guy to be able to knock down shots on your starting roster, and they just simply just don't have that. Unfortunately not. Maybe, De- mean, maybe Dennis and maybe Patrick. Maybe. But that's a stretch. That's a stretch. That's, that's just, that's, that, that, that ain't it. That's not going to cover. The, the, there have been games where Thomas Bryant has been I saw he had like 31 a buckets. couple nights ago. Yeah, Braun dropped like 37 and Thomas dropped 31. So, he had three in this game. Yeah. That's because of AD's presence. Now the AD's back in the full. It just kind of happens. This is what it is. So it exactly. It, it, you know, that that uh that'll kind of be a perfect way to wrap this up. Um guys, we are at the end of the month. We are at at wit's end, it would seem, because football's at the end. Uh, the NBA is where it's kind of trickling its way towards the All Star break, which is like a, a week or two away. And baseball is going to be ramping up in about two, three weeks. Pitchers and catchers should be reporting any day now. So we are just excited to have content rolling through. But overall, we are just having a lot of fun, making sure that we have content flowing at all times. But I mean, overall, like when you have situations like this, or the Super Bowl approaching. And all these crazy games with these MVP candidates, it's like this is when it makes our job fun because we have just a multifaceted agenda. It's not focalized really in one specific place. So, um, you know, stay tuned for more analysis like this and everything we've been doing over the past couple of years. But uh, just want to say thank you and appreciate you guys for the support. Um, we've been growing exponentially, as I say, pretty much almost every week. I mean, it, it, it's true. We're just we're moving on all platforms. It's been really, really fun to see and watch. But um you know, couldn't be here without you guys, man. Seriously. Yeah. And, um, you know, we just appreciate the support wherever we get it. I, Kev, I actually just checked the, uh, our sub count on YouTube. We're only five away from a thousand. So that's crazy, man. <laughs> that's just nuts. So maybe by the time that we record on Thursday and we drop the episode on Friday, maybe we'll have a thousand subs by then. So, um, obviously you guys are supporting the podcast, um, obviously on YouTube but not just that on the audio platforms as well. And we definitely appreciate that. 
And uh, we hope that it continues as Kevin and I continue this journey. And um, honestly, uh, some things are going to change. Uh, obviously, with football season coming to an end, there will be more of a there will be more of a focus on NBA, obviously MLB, and um, I do want to get into some NHL topics. That that is something that that I, I want to get into, and and maybe some UFC as well. So you know, now it's twenty twenty three, and you know those respective sports are either in mid season or are ramping up. So. I think there'll be some opportunities for some content there for you guys to enjoy as well. So definitely stay tuned for that. But Kev, I think, uh, I think I'm good for here. I'm, I'm good from here. So take us on home, bro. Yes, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for watching. Thank you for listening. We will see you guys again later this week. And we actually have a surprise coming up on Tuesday. We'll keep you guys posted as the week progresses, but Kyle and I got something cooking up in the kitchen with some other, uh, some other podcasts. So we'll see you guys again soon. Have a great night and have a great week. Yes, sir. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric acid.